I'm absolutely convinced that all men, including you and I, have hidden potential that's not been tapped into. The team and I have designed a quiz for you to work out what that could be, and there's a link to it in the show notes. I'll tell you more at the end, but for now, enjoy the episode. I just remember going from zero to 100 in my head of trying to think of what would be the right answer. It seemed like a life or death situation. Welcome to Stories of Men, Beneath the Surface. I'm Alex Melia. Join me as we discover what it means to be a man in the modern era. Sometimes our bodies act in ways that are separate from what we desire to do in our heads. Whether that's skipping the gym class because you've sprained an ankle, or missing a night out because you've got a stomach bug, it's a frustrating feeling knowing that sometimes we just have no power over what our bodies do, despite our head's best intentions. Kevin had been in a relationship with his partner for just under a year, and on her birthday, Kevin's future-in-laws had booked a barge trip for the four of them to boat through the beautiful Yorkshire countryside. A sunny day in June, it seemed like it was going to be a picturesque and tranquil afternoon trip until Kevin started feeling strange. The barge trip in itself was a surprise for my partner for a birthday from her parents. And they were going to pull in, they knew the spot that they could pull into where we were going to have this lunch. So there's four of us on the boat and it's, as I say, it's a lovely sunny day and they've got a radio on, I think it's tuned to Radio 2. It's just down in the downstairs part of this barge. You can hear the birds tweeting away, just the sound of the water lapping against the boat. You've got all the barges passing by and waving and we're all waving back and everything's like a nice picturesque, perfect English breakock on a canal sort of situation. We were chatting about at the, the buildings we were going past. Her stepfather is he's our ex-deputy headmaster, so he's quite knowledgeable and he likes all things architecture-wise. So he's a very educated man and he's pointing things out and he's explaining them as we're travelling down. It's all very interesting and kind of trying to feel a bit laid back, getting into the day. And at one point he turns and he asks me a question and it was a simple question, something as simple as, do you want a cheese sandwich or do you want a ham sandwich? I just remember going from zero to a hundred in my head of trying to think of what would be the right answer. It seemed like a life or death situation. And I remember smiling at him. I remember catching my breath. I remember not being able to think of the correct way of formulating the response and having to sit down. And everyone then was around me going, are you okay, are you okay? And I couldn't form words, like words were not coming out of my mouth. I felt a tightness in my chest and I wasn't sure what was going on. And I was, funny enough, as you know, most people do in this situation, especially if you're a man, you laugh. So I'm kind of chuckling and shrugging and still not speaking a word, just holding my chest and making faces. And I can feel my face burning up with embarrassment. So as I'm in this kind of state, my father-in-law kind of puts his hand on my chest to feel my heart, which is obviously racing. So to him, that backs up the theory that there's something physical going on. I was frozen, I was completely frozen. My brain was in such a state that it, I'd convinced myself internally that whatever I would say would not be the right response over something as trivial 
as what sandwich would you like to eat? I've been scared before, I've been terrified before, but I've never been in a situation where I was unable to talk. And I went into complete shutdown. So Kevin, can you tell me what happened next after you got off the boat? Yeah, so when we got off the boat, we kind of tailed back away from her parents because they were both still aware that I was, you know, and which also played in doubly into my anxiety at the time is that I'd now took the shine off her birthday and it was now about my health. The situation had changed dramatically and her parents were walking ahead to give us a chance to try and right whatever wrong was go clearly going wrong with me. We'd established it wasn't physical which only left the obvious thing that is something's wrong with this fella's head. Um, so as we got off the boat, her parents walk ahead to the car, give us a bit of space so that we can start talking amongst ourselves. And again, it was just really my partner checking that I was okay. I was just kept reiterating that I'm fine. She doesn't have to worry. I'm breathing okay. You know, my heart rate's back down. I can say, I can talk normally. I'm not sure what happened on the boat. I can't explain it. I'd never want to experience it again, and I'll make sure that I see the doctor. And then we drove home. Her parents dropped us off at our house, and they carried on to their house. And I very quickly wanted to go to bed that night. I kind of wanted to mentally reset and wake up the next day, uh, which wasn't ideal with it being her birthday. It felt like a rather selfish move, but at the same time, there was only one way that I could reset myself, and that was by going to sleep. We were able to let go of the fact that it was her birthday and you had this this difficult situation happen because I can imagine you might have this kind of tussle in your in your mind where maybe perhaps there was feelings of guilt. It sounds like on your on your side for the fact it was a beautiful day. This bad trip was organised. Uh, your partner loves boats, but you've had this this scenario happen to you that you've never really experienced before, and perhaps it might have overshadowed her birthday a bit. I still carried the guilt of of ruining that day for her. Uh, and try my best to give other days, when I say give other days, you know, take her out for meals on days which weren't a birthday to try and make it up for the fact that I'd turned a day that was all about her, suddenly all about me for a very negative reason, was all that kept replaying in my, in my mind over and over again. And it was only after the, the diagnosis, if you will, by the doctor of social anxiety disorder that it starts, that it, it, was, it was good that I kind of had a diagnosis Um but it was also my first journey into the, the whole landscape of, of looking after yourself mentally as well. How did you feel when you got that news from the from the doctor? Because I've actually experienced social anxiety myself in the past and it's not, not a pleasant feeling and it's not something that can be, be cured straight away. And, you know, I think we talked before about you, you have counselling and so do I and it's kind of a, it's a daily, it's a daily, I say, I don't want to say struggle, but it's a, it's a daily challenge of putting yourself in situations perhaps that are outside of your comfort zone. And because I'm trying to, I'm trying to overcome this myself. And we've done that. We've done something, both of us who've got social anxiety, we, we're both doing things that perhaps people might not expect us to do, which is speaking a lot in podcasting and uh, talking to people. It's a, it's a great point, yeah. It's um, Getting the diagnosis was was a strange thing because, I'll be honest, I was brought up um, with the old-fashioned toxic mentality of you just get on with it. Literally, that's like my dad's saying, um, is you just got to get on with it. That, that's, 
you know, you live your life by that. So you don't have time for things like social anxiety disorder. You know, if you're told that you've got that by a doctor, it's kind of, it's well, it's not seen as almost witchcraft, if you like. It's seen as it's not a real illness. It's, um, and interestingly, it's still, I'm aware of it now. It's something I think that, I, I think once you've been diagnosed with it, you can, you can heal the the wound you can you, you know the the wound can scab over with social anxiety disorder, but it can also open up very quickly again, and there is warning signs where that wound starts to open, and I've noticed them within myself over the years since um, two thousand five. So it's things such as I notice if it starts to happen again, I'll start stuttering over a period of days, and I'll notice it. Or my partner will pick up and say, do you know you've been stuttering quite a lot the last few days? And then I'll tr I'll have to try and look at internally at myself and see what's going on, uh, which is something I'd never do before. But you're right in terms of the podcasting. I was, see, I was always a socially active person, literally um, within a room without sounding like a big head. You know, I, I would be the, not the life and soul of a party, but I'd make sure everyone was laughing. Um, largely self-deprecation, but, you know, that's kind of key to my humor. But um, so that was when it was around 20 or 25, there, thereabouts. And then it kind of went downhill and hit this slump and then hit this full stop. And getting back up from that to the point of being able to more or less be who you were, that podcasting helped. You know, that was one of the things. It was like being podcasting now for about seven years. And it was because I thought I need to be able to just speak. I need to be able to talk and I need to be able to, more importantly, I need to be able to talk without thinking about what I'm about to say. I know that sounds stupid in a way, but you know, I need to be able to say a sentence such as now, like the last two minutes of what I've just been talking about, I'm not pre-thinking each and every word before it leaves my mouth. And I needed to get back to that state and podcasting helped that uh, in a massive way. Really, it's kind of like a self therapy. It's just like a, it's like a, a freestyle thing, and and it feels it feels great to be able to just speak in that sort of fashion uh, with not really constantly thinking about the next word, the next sentence you're going to say. And obviously, if you've been doing podcasting for seven years, you know that that sort of thing comes naturally to now. To you know, what was what was interesting you you said before, which made me wanted to come back to it, is what your father was saying to you about get on with it. It made me think of other phrases that our parents and grandparents and the older generation, I, I say the older generation, actually, people still say it now, get on with it, pull your socks up, what are you doing faffing around, get up, get out. Those kinds of phrases are actually really detrimental to our mental health and actually would become a lot worse by just ignoring it. There's a lot of harmful phrases which are used in a, they're intended to be used in a positive way, but they're more detrimental than they are help. But I think, it, like I was saying earlier, I do think that there's an in, we live in a we live in a very interesting age at the moment. I think. Now I'm 44. Now when um, when I was 16, my mother died. Like I said earlier, I went through a little what I now recognise as depression. Wouldn't get out of bed, and my dad did come in and say, "Get your lazy ass up, get out, get a job." Because I'd quit my A levels at this point. It was around the same time. It was like if you if you're not just sitting here doing nothing, go and get a job. 
Now, there's no internet, there's no nothing like that. You know, mobile phones, I think, had just arrived on the scene. And that's if you were rich enough to own one. Um, and uh, so, so I did, I got out of bed, I went down the job centre and I got myself a job. Although I do completely agree that the idea of pull your socks up, you know, be a man, that's, that's all nonsense and harmful and does a lot more damage than good. But I will also say to the counter, just to play devil's advocate, if we had the internet in 1995 um, and there was all these online forums, there's a chance that I would have logged onto a forum and found a helpful group, and I don't mean that in a positive way, a group who would reinforce my negative opinions about who I was and about my feelings and validating my negative thoughts, when in reality, genuinely, I still believe what I did need at that age was someone to say, you need to kick up the arse. Yeah, but it's, it's definitely it's an accountability thing as well. You're held accountable by a, a group of people that you respect, for example. But then saying, when you start to feel better, why don't you set yourself a little challenge to get out the house, go to the edge of the street and just keep building it, go to the field, and then you can start building up from there. But otherwise, if you don't have that, then you could just stay inside all day and one day becomes one week, one week becomes one month, one month becomes a year, and then you're not able to get out of the house and face people. And I think that's very dangerous. It definitely is. And there's there's also, you know, and I've seen it in people, sadly. Um, I've seen it in people where they stay in that situation so long that it starts to define them. And, and you know, I, I won't mention any individual names, obviously, um, but one particular person that I did know, and I say did in the past tense, sadly, they, for a good few number of years, they their mental health defined them. And if you were introduced them at a party, the first things out of their mouth would be to say that they have this mental disorder, you know, and it was kind of a badge of honor is what it seemed like, how it was presented. And we would have to, you'd sit down with the person and be like, have you tried this? Have you tried this? Have you tried the other? Can we recommend this? Can we rec recommend that? Um, and they said, done it all, done it all. Don't, you know, don't want to do it. Don't want to do it. Don't want to do it. And it was a very strange thing. They're no longer with us. They took their own life, sadly. Um, but it's, it always, it sticks with me. I'm, you know, I'm obviously no expert in mental health, obviously, but it sticks with me in, in the way that I do, I do recall that it was a, I wouldn't go as far as to say it was a, a, a piece of pride with the person by any stretch, but there was definitely something that they clung on to that it was a trait that they felt was theirs, which is sad in itself, you know, that it was the one thing that they felt they truly owned was the depression. And it's so sad that that person ended up taking their life. It seemed like they weren't open to the opinions of others. They just built up this persona so much that they couldn't imagine their life without the mental illness that they had. And you f I feel like walking on eggshells, even discussing it, but it's, it, it's that's what I, I, I observed taking place. And yet there may be people who obviously say, well, that's because of X and that's because of Y and that, and that all may be completely right. But from, from what I observed, it, that was the way it happened. You know, the person sadly held on to, like, like a, ironically, like a, a life, raft sort of thing they, they held on to. It was the one thing that they'd built themselves, as weird as that sounds, that there was one thing that they could point at and say, that's mine. And it was a depressive 
mentality. It just seems strange from the outside, but I can understand why people do it, why you would define yourself in that way. You know, you might say, hi, my name's Alex and I have, I'm, I'm a depressed person or I'm, a, I'm an anxious person or I've got this particular, I've got OCD or whatever. It does seem strange that people do that, but at least in their mind, they can be defined by something, even if it's a negative thing. Before we continue with the show, I just wanted to mention again that I'd love to speak to you and learn about your ideas of how we can make the show better for you, the listener. Click the link below in the description and jump on a call with me. For now, let's get back to the episode. You know, I mean, like we've talked about earlier, I'm, I'm currently in therapy because I have up and down days. My partner pointed out my down days were becoming more frequent. Um, I've started doing therapy and getting to the root of some of the underlying reasons of why those down days were becoming more frequent. And it's unveiling quite a lot. You know, it's, it's so it's we all the thing is the interesting thing I found from starting therapy was the attitude of which is what I first went into therapy with is but everybody feels like this. And so why am I any different? Why should I be the one talking to this person? I'm I'm all right. I'm fine. Why am I talking to this person? And the therapist asked me a few very simple questions like along the lines of, okay, well, within the last month, have you thought even once about taking your own life? I was like, yeah. And she was like, right, I haven't. I was like, okay. And then there was like another question and I was like, <laughs> wasn't expecting okay. that. Yeah. And then there was a few where it was just like, she was like, yeah, this, this is it. You know, there's a reason why you're here. Everyone may think like this, but if that's the case, everyone should be doing something like this. It was a strange sort of realization, which I'm still trying to come to grips with. So it's counterintuitive that your counselor would say that to you, but I, I understand the, the logic behind it. And I remember actually thinking in therapy, this is the interesting thing about anybody who's thinking about therapy, is session one, I left thinking that was a load of nonsense. Session two, she had me in tears and I left thinking she was a wizard. Session three, I thought that was a load of nonsense. Session four, I'm in tears again. So it's, um, it's like emotional tennis. Why do you think that you have those sort of... At one point you think she's talking nonsense and the next you're crying and then nonsense, crying, nonsense, crying. I, I think with the nonsense part of it, it's because I will always have this mentality of, and I've had it ever since a child, it's inherent in me, that I'm, I'm being had off, right? That someone's trying to take the mick out of me or someone's trying to manipulate me. I will always have that inherently in me. And there's times I'll approach a therapy session with that mentality. And they're the days that I leave thinking this is a this is a con. But then we had one session. We went in, interestingly, I'm quite uh, self-deprecating to myself, even like in mirrors and things, you know, like if a person drops a cup, you know, they might say, oh shit, I've dropped a cup. If I drop a cup, the things that I'd say about myself aren't worth air and sort of thing. Um, and she was like, so who is this person? Who is this person that is saying these things? Anyway, long story short, she established that I, in early teen years, created this person as a protector or this persona as a protector due to losing a parent. And this person would look out for me. And as a grown man, it stayed around. 
But because, for whatever reason, it doesn't think this is, gets really weird now. So it's because as a grown adult, it this persona doesn't think I'm where I should be. It's turned on me, right? And so therefore, any mistake, it's still treat me as a child. It's powerful, isn't it, to start thinking about the five-year-old Kevin, the 15-year-old Kevin, and so on. Thinking about those inner, inner children within us. And my counsellor's done similar scenarios, and I also get... It's a trigger for me in terms of crying and and feeling, feel feeling very much, very, feeling very protective of the younger versions of myself, and uh, we do have that. I, I feel like those people, those boys, are still within me, and I just want to hug them. I want to look after them, and want to protect them from things that I know that they're going to experience in future and. It's interesting that, that that's a trigger for you. And I think this is where it, get, it gets to a bit, a bit to a, a boiling point, really. This is why I started the therapy is that my partner overheard me looking in the mirror and and talk, not talking to myself as in like, you know, whatever the perceived connotations of that is, but as in like looking in the mirror and saying, you look fucking awful today. You look like a piece of shit. You know, you know like as in outwardly saying, I mean, Who's going to have a good day being told that, even if it's by yourself? I found it intriguing as to why you said it out. You said it out loud when you, you were in front of the mirror. Not you didn't say it to yourself. I'm just curious, why did you say it out loud? See that I think this is one thing that I'm we'll come into the crux with in terms of the therapy sessions is that if I have frustrations with anything, I'll take it out on me. Do you know what I mean? So if let's say, I don't know, somebody puts accidentally kicks a ball through the window um, and I've got to sort out getting it fixed and all that carry on, then the day after I'll look in the mirror after having a shower and call myself fit to burn. There's a pent up frustration that needs to come out and I'm aiming it at myself. We are our own biggest bullies and the things that we say to ourselves, we would never say to anyone else. And I'm sure a lot of people listening have heard that before but it's absolutely true i mean do you think about me saying to myself you stupid fucking idiot <laughs> i would never say that to anyone else as me therapist has said would you would you say this to your partner if they dropped a cup or you know and i said god no 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 only a horrible person would say that and she said well why are you saying it to yourself why you know why are they the first words you're hearing every morning is something negative about yourself from yourself she went how do you think that's going to start your day I'm like, yeah, it's a, it's a fair shout, <laughs> to be honest. You're not going to be feeling great, are you? We've mentioned a few times about self-deprecating humour, and I think it's something that British males are famous for, <laughs> which, you know, but most most guys that you meet do have that about them. Why, why do you have that as such a big part of your personality, and why do you think it's kind of part of the culture? I mean, we've both grown up in the Northwest. I, I mean, I've met a lot of people from other parts of the UK who have that, but it, it seems to be particularly strong in the Northwest. I don't know why that is. What do you think? To be honest, I think there's a tipping point with it. I think it's a really useful mechanism in social situations um, as a disarming tactic. I think, and I've thought about this in like kind of in depth. I think I kind of perfected it between the ages of like 25 and 30. Like I got it to <laughs> perfected it. I, I literally, yeah. like you know, it was like it was at the right level. For example, what I mean by that is, I could walk into a pub, for example, um, with one person meeting one person that I knew who was with eight people that I didn't, and self-deprecate to a perfect point where I've disarmed all them 
from saying anything negative about me because I've already said it about myself. And they also think he's all right. He can take the piss out of himself. And then we'd crack on. And within 10 minutes, you know, you're everyone's mate. Because it's like a it's like a defense mechanism. Why do we think, oh, I'm the new guy. I'm, they're going to take the piss out of me. And then how does that make me feel afterwards? For example, my name sounds quite posh, even though I grew up on a council estate, Alexander Claude Melia. I was so insecure about it. When there was a substitute teacher, I would run in and say, by the way, it says on the register, it's Alexander, but can you just call me Alex? And then if it was an older teacher and they might forget and they say Alexander and all the kids start smirking, it's like you want to be in control, you want to be in the power position to control the narrative. And it's like, I don't want to feel like I'm the butt of all the jokes. So like you do when you go into the pub, you say that straight away. But why do we feel like we have to take the piss out of each other? The positives of self-deprecation, I think it shows a vulnerability. It shows that you're, you you know, to this stranger, it shows I'm aware of my own faults. I'm aware of what you see. I'm open and vulnerable, and, and but at the same time, confident enough to tell you what those are outright. Let's crack on. And that person then will ultimately feel calm. And you are actually in, in the power position then, I think, within that dynamic, because you've, you have disarmed them. You know, you've... That you that you've come in as a new person, they they're like, who is he? Does he think he's hard? Does he think he's tough? What does he think of himself? And you've come in and went, I am no threat, and they've instantly relaxed. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting the societal pressures that are put on us at, at certain certain stages of our life, and and I totally agree with you. There's no badge of honour in my mind as an adult anyway from feeling like I'm the hardest man of the group, or as we used to say at school. Who's the, who's, the of the of the, yeah, yeah. who's the cock of the year? Who's the cockerel of the year? Yeah. Uh, who's the hardest lad? And there was this sort of this this sort of gravitas or this 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 sort of uh, social credit that you would have for for being the hardest. Oh, I better not get on the wrong side of of him. Lastly, I want to say, uh, Kevin, it's been great to have you on the podcast, and what an inspiration it is for for people who listen to your 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 podcast. You know to hear about where you've come from uh, to where you are now because this is probably the last thing that people would expect to have you know two podcasts millions of downloads you're on Amazon you're doing all of these all of these things but people would think having a podcast where you speak a lot would be the last thing that you would do where your your um, your father-in-law is asking you a simple question like would you like a cheese sandwich and you're able to to respond so it shows you know if you have that uh get out of bed scenario or go um uh pull your go socks get a up job. or whatever, go and get a job it could actually lead to something <laughs> yeah it's it's an interesting thing i don't you know i don't think there's there are clearly wrong answers but i'm not too sure i'm not too sure the balance of, of right and wrong something i thought that was really revealing about this conversation with kevin was this idea of self-deprecation being a form of protection. We've talked about it a few times on the podcast before and it keeps coming back up. It made me reflect on this because after meeting so many different nationalities from around the world, it seems to be that self-deprecation as a form of defense or as a form of protection is something that's almost synonymous with British men. It's almost like you're preempting that people are gonna to want to take the piss out of you or they're about to do that and you're disarming them before they've even got a chance to speak. And it's funny because they might not have even wanted to take the piss out of you. 
I've also found that sometimes men show signs that they're about to do that as well. Sometimes I've found it's this look they give you, and I think I've done that to other people as well, where the look is that they're almost concocting some sort of witty remark to put you away. And then as you see that, it's almost like you're scrambling to think of some sort of thing to say back to them or something to say before they even say it. Now this all seems sort of childish and I think it originates back to, to secondary school where everyone's taking the piss out of each other and you're, you're almost on this defensive the whole time. It even goes back to really childish sort of remarks. And I think sometimes we do that as adults. And I've noticed myself as well, you know, the 15 year old Alex is, is coming out with some response. And I'm thinking as a 36 year old Alex, why did you say that? That was quite a childish thing to say. The beauty nowadays is that I can actually recognize when I'm doing that and reflect upon it and think about how I don't do that in future. Sometimes I've noticed these remarks can come off as passive aggressive. What are the impacts of this social crutch on our mental health for the people who say these things and the people who receive them? Because it can almost be this endless sort of back and forth, back and forth. And is it good for the other person? Is it good for you? Are you pretending that it's not affecting you when it actually is? Does it affect our self-esteem and our self-image in the long run? When Kevin had his anxiety attack, it was like his mind and his body were saying to him, something is not right, we need to address this. It makes me think it's like when we get a headache, you know, immediately we want to look for the headache tablet. But actually, what is this actually saying to us? There could be some other issue in our body. And I remember recently I was feeling, I had this tension headache and I could, I could press my eyelid and I could feel this headache, but it wasn't actually in that area. The pain hadn't originated in that area. When I actually pressed my hands on other parts of my body, I realized it was in my scapula. I could feel it as I was putting my hand on my back, pressing my fingers into the pain and I could feel it and how it had traveled all the way from my back up to my eyelid. I'm so glad for Kevin that he was able to address his issue because otherwise it would have just happened again and again and again and the problem would have got even worse. When I've had anxiety attacks in the past, it's almost like it's an alarm bell going off and it's your opportunity to decide, am I going to address this or am I just going to ignore it? It's like an excuse we say to others and to ourselves, I'm fine, as Kevin did, but actually you're not fine and it's something that you need to address. Another thing I've noticed in my counselling is this need to protect the inner child within me and working out how that process actually helps me or hinders me in my daily life. So what's the solution to all this? Why do so many men experience social anxiety? How can we better speak to ourselves to improve the situation? Not only for ourselves, but also for other men in general. Before you go, let me tell you about our man test. The team and I created it with the belief that every man has hidden, untapped potential, and I want to help you discover what it could be. Let's face it, we've all got dreams and aspirations, but the stresses of life can get in the way. I know I've been there myself. As men, each one of us has skills and knowledge that sets us apart from the rest. It's about discovering what they are and making the most of them. The man test is simple. It takes less than three minutes and will help you discover your true strengths and talents by working out what kind of modern man you really are. Find the link in the show notes and take the man test today. You never know, you might just learn something new about yourself that you didn't know before.